The Centre for Professional Learning acknowledges and pays respect to traditional custodians and their ancestors across our broad country. We acknowledge the past, present and emerging elders on whose land we have been privileged to live and work. This podcast was produced on Gadigal land. We recognise First Nations people's continuing connection to lands, waters and culture around the world. This podcast was recorded in 2020 by the team from Trio Professional Learning, Jenny, Sandra and Mary Ellen, as part of a series of conversations between teachers about practical aspects of teaching in primary classrooms. Trio presented a variety of courses for the Centre for Professional Learning from 2013 to 2021. Following their retirement and to continue supporting New South Wales public school teachers, Trio made their series of podcasts available to the CPL. The documents mentioned in the podcasts are available on the CPL website. Welcome to Trio Podcasts. In this episode of the Take 5 series, we are discussing improving writing. Hello, I'm Jenny Williams. And I'm Mary Ellen Betts. Um, We're talking about improving writing, Jenny, and I think the first thing we need to be aware of when we sit down to write is that we actually have to make decisions before we sit down to write and we have to know um, why we're writing. Every time we pick up a pencil or sit down at a computer to write, there's a reason for doing that. And that purpose um, defines a whole lot of other things about what we're going to write. There are three clear purposes for writing. Uh, The first one is to persuade, where you're trying to bring someone else around to your um, beliefs, your point of view. Uh, You're using emotive language. It's sort of, it's powerful. It's bringing someone along almost to your side. Um, The second um, purpose that you might be writing for is to actually um, share some information, um, inform people um, about facts that they may not have have known. going deeper into a, into a topic so that you're actually just sharing information. And the third type is um, imaginative, um, creating that imaginary world, um, entertaining, flying off into fantasy um, or back through historical. But it's, it's imaginative in terms of you are creating uh, the scene. Um, so... Three clear purposes, persuasive, informative and imaginative. I have borrowed from uh, Pinterest, Mary Ellen, and when I'm using those uh, purposes within my class, I use the phrase purpose is as easy as pie. Pie meaning persuade, P, I, inform, and the E, entertain. Even though our syllabus says imaginative as a purpose, I think it's possibly easier to understand entertaining. So I use that That terminology, purpose is as easy as pie, because I want my students to be very aware of the three main purposes for which we write. And we all know that there are lots of hybrid texts out there that mix up purposes, and certainly that's what a competent writer does. But we have to learn those basic elements of those three purposes for writing. The other part of the the writing process that needs to be unpacked we before we start is audience. Who is it that we're writing for? Who's going to read this piece of writing that we've written? And why that's important is it 
Knowing our audience will help us to think about the formality or informality of our text. It will help us to write to engage that particular audience. And so having those conversations in your class around the writing that you're going to do is very important. Um, I think that we we often find it difficult to think about a real audience for the tasks that we set students in the classroom. And so the more opportunities we can provide for our students to write for an authentic reason for a real audience, I think is really important. Um, I also think considering the language choices that you make for a different audience is also important. If I ask a child to take a message to the principal, their language choices, perhaps even their uh, way of standing, uh, their waiting, uh, their turn, will look very different if they're delivering a message to the principal or delivering the message to another member of the class. It's the same with us on the phone. The simple text that we send to a close friend or member of the family is going to be very abbreviated. It'll get the message across for that audience, but if we were wording it uh, in a more formal way or for somebody that we don't know at all, our language choices and our abbreviations would be quite different, would look quite different. So having a clear understanding of both purpose and audience needs to come before we start writing. There's one other aspect of audience that I think is important, and that is getting the attention of your audience. If you know who you're writing for, then you can shape how you're going to engage with the audience as quickly as possible in your writing. And that's important if we want to make sure that what we write will be read, understood, and enjoyed by the people it's been designed for. So I think that covers um, our first take five point, unpacking why and who. And now we come to, well, once we've decided on why and who, then how needs to follow on from that. And there's some key understanding around how texts work that we need to address as part of that how. Mary Ellen, do you want to talk about text structure? Certainly, because for each purpose of writing, um, there's quite a different text structure. And it's important to actually get these clear early um, because then as you become more sophisticated, you can play around with it. But let's start with some really basic outlines um, in terms of um, persuade, inform and entertain. So with persuade, what you're doing is you're starting with an introduction. You're stating the topic and your position. You're giving your um, line of argument. And then following that, you develop the argument so that um, your statement, your introduction has, has set those out and then it follows with a paragraph or two around each of the arguments so that you are giving greater information, you are supporting the evidence. Um, and in a persuasive, you can argue one side or both sides. You know, it's you choose as the, um, as the author which way you're going to do. But it's very clear in terms of you've got an argument and the evidence to support that argument. 
And then your conclusion pulls it all together with almost a restating of those arguments as a, you know, it's a final sort of wham, bam, you know, I've got you, I've clinched the deal. Um, so it's a very straightforward structure for a persuasive text. Informative texts are slightly different. Um, again, you've got an introduction where you're talking about what it is that you are discussing. And it really is important to actually give a clear outline of, you know, this is my topic. Um, and it's also interesting to sort of, you know, why why are you sharing any information about this topic? And then each, uh, the, the introduction is followed by bundles of information. And this, I think, is where we can fall apart really quickly with kids' writing is they don't necessarily bundle the same information together. So you can get bizarre things about you talking about where birds live and then um, something about the colour of the houses in the same area. So, you know, bundling-like information is really important and helping kids understand that a paragraph is giving you information about one, um, all the information in that paragraph is, is, is related. And then that follows again with a concluding statement that sort of wraps up um, all the information that you've, get, you've given. So then, again, that's a very clear structure, introduction, bundles of information, and then conclusion. A narrative um, is a little bit more open, but we've still, we still start with that same orientation where you actually set out um, who, what, where, when, and why. And, but I also think it's important that we actually look at how that happens. Um, and that's where you and I have talked frequently about using mentor texts because real authors um, set up orientations in really fantastic ways as opposed to this story is about them. Mm. So the orientation puts it in the setting, who's happening. The complication is uh, the main thrust of the story of the problem that the characters in the story have to overcome. Um, there's always some excitement. Sometimes it's a series, you know, with an older writer it might be a, a, a series of, is, of complications. Um, and it's followed by a resolution where the whole thing's wrapped up nicely and either characters are, are, are happy or sad. Um, it's... The essence stays the same no matter how long the writing or how complicated. Um, in novels that kids read, there might be a complication and a resolution in each chapter as the story builds. But for the purpose of our talking today, we're thinking of student writers um, writing you know, maximum two pages around some of these things. What do you think, Jenny? Is that, that yeah? I I think the the talk about text structure is really interesting, Mary Ellen. And I think when you're when you've just been unpacking the fact that the text structure looks different, whether you're writing a narrative or a persuasive text or an informative text, there's a lot of quite complex uh, thinking that students have to do in terms of understanding how the text structure when you're writing for a different purpose can look different. What I try to do is say to students, text structure is sort of what I can see. So I can see paragraphs, I can see an introduction, I can see a headline, I can see subheadings. Uh, it's kind of like the, the uh, shape of the writing and I can identify that shape. 
I think one of the interesting things about this syllabus that perhaps a lot of schools haven't quite grasped is that this is not something that needs to be taught in great big chunks. It's not like term two needs to be devoted to informative text. In fact, we need to think, I think, about what we do as adults when we write. And so in the real world, the kind of writing that people do can vary every half hour, sometimes even less. I might be writing a text message to a family member to say, get the meat out of the freezer for dinner. Um, And then the next minute, I might be writing a sales report that's going to be um, taken to my boss who might then share it at a group meeting. So the purpose and audience for the things that in real life we write every day can vary enormously. And so the text structures can vary enormously. And so what we want our students to be able to do is to move flexibly from one sort of writing to another and not to know that, oh, this is term two, so everything I write has to be about an information report. I don't think that's the way for them to become truly independent writers. Uh, Yes, we've got to do explicit teaching. There's no doubt about that. And you've made that very clear, Mary Ellen, in terms of looking at text structure But the thought of taking a whole term, I think, is really um, not in the spirit of this syllabus document. Perhaps it's reflective of the previous syllabus, but not of this syllabus document. We want students who can understand how purpose and audience gives a shape to their writing. That shape is called a text structure, and they want to be able to move fluently uh, and fluidly if their purpose and audience changes into a new type of text structure. Yes, I think that's exactly the way to go. Um, I also am um, reminded of um, some of the uh, courses we've presented when I said that, yes, we start with these rigid text structures, but then we very very rapidly move into um making them more flexible and teachers are really good at that. Whenever I've asked teachers to write for a particular purpose, um, there's always someone who's who has turned their text into a hybrid text um, for the amusement of everybody around them. So, yes, there are outlines, but as we go through from K to 6, they um, might blur a little into hybrids, but you've got to know the essence, the purity to start with. Yes, I agree with that. So we start with some basic uh, teaching around text structures and then over time we're wanting uh, students to be able to develop their own style and their own way of approaching um, each of those three main purposes that we've outlined. We've talked a little bit about text structure as part of the how. How do we set up our writing once we know the purpose and audience? But there's another aspect to that, Mary Ellen, that I'd like to talk about, and that's the language features of a text. So there are two sides of this coin of how. One is being aware of your text structure, and that depends on your purpose. And the other is being aware of the most appropriate sort of language to use given your purpose and your text structure. I think a classic example of that, and a very easy one to understand, is the way we use adjectives. There are lots of different uh, types of describing words. 
I can have describing words that tell me about the size, the shape, the colour, but I can also have adjectives that are opinion adjectives. I can talk about how cute that little fluffy toy might be. Um, And I can have classifying adjectives that I can use to describe an Indian elephant rather than an African elephant or a leather handbag rather than a plastic handbag. So they're adjectives that classify uh, the noun that they're qualifying. So when I think about, for instance, writing an information text, there are certain adjectives that are appropriate and certain adjectives that are less appropriate in a factual text. In a factual text where I'm um, informing people, I want my language to be accurate. And so, yes, I'm going to use a whole lot of adjectives that describe size or shape or colour, but I'm not going to use opinion adjectives. I'm not going to say in my um, informative report about cows that the cow had cute brown eyes. Brown eyes is a fact. Cute is my opinion and not appropriate and an information text. In the same way, classifying adjectives are going to be very appropriate in an informative text. But the sort of language I use is going to be moderated depending on my purpose and my audience. And that's just one example of how that might happen with a language feature. Really, a summary of language features is that it's the grammar. It's the underlying way in which we put words together in sentences and the sort of grammatical features that are most appropriate and most effective in a particular type of text designed for a particular purpose. So I can think of a whole lot of ways where uh, this can vary from text to text. My adjective example is one. I guess another one is the way in which we uh, use pronouns to reference in a text. Obviously, in any text, we're using pronoun references. But if I'm writing a persuasive text about the need to plant more trees, I might make a, a decision as an author that I really want to emphasise trees. And so I'll begin each of my sentences with trees rather than moving from trees to a pronoun reference they in subsequent sentences. Whereas in an information report about trees, it's going to get boring if I keep repeating trees, trees, trees. I want to go back and uh, use some pronoun references. Whereas in the persuasive text, I'm saying we need to plant trees to give us more oxygen. Trees are important to saving this planet. Trees, and I'm emphasising and repeating, repeating as a point of emphasis which is a choice I'm making rather than using the typical pronoun referencing that might apply in other types of texts. So a whole lot of things to think about in terms of the language features that are most appropriate for my text structure given my purpose and audience. One of the things I think happened with the previous syllabus was that we, we jumped on board very much with text structures and it almost crucified us. But, and I like the fact that this cele- the Australian curriculum goes very much to these, these three t- types of text. But I think 
it becomes obvious at times in classrooms that we have not done justice to the teaching of language features. And I think what you've just said then about the language changes for the purpose, I think is something we could probably do um, a better job of. I know that, you know, kids are really good at, you know, would, must, have to, imperative for persuasive, but I don't think it's been, it doesn't come through as well with informative. Yes. Informative texts. Yes. Uh, you know, I think we've done a, a good job in some parts of this. Yes. I'm sure every student in the state can write firstly, secondly, 500thly, but there are other ways to uh, use language effectively within a persuasive text. And I think you're right, Mary Ellen, I think we've tended uh, to think that grammar is something that we teach as a separate entity. Um, it it's a, might be the, the grammar lesson with the textbook at nine o'clock on Thursday morning. The problem with that is, yes, we're giving students the meta language and we're helping them to understand what that is, but often we don't see an automatic transfer of that knowledge into student writing. And so I think that leads us really nicely into our next Take 5 point, which is learn the mechanics. Learn the mechanics in terms of words, paragraphs, and the process of editing. So let's start by thinking about the mechanics of language. Uh, and this really is building on what the language features are that we were speaking about uh, previously. We know that learning takes place best within a context. So using the context of what you're reading and what you're writing is a very powerful learning tool for things like grammar and vocabulary and spelling. What I mean by that is, rather than an isolated lesson, perhaps with a textbook around a grammatical feature, talk about it as part of what you need now for writing for this particular purpose. So I'm thinking of the ways in which I can make my writing effective. Maybe I'm teaching students how adjectives work and we might be, if we're looking at a factual text, talking about, well, classifying adjectives are going to be your friend in an informative text and you're not going to use opinion adjectives. Maybe we're looking at a narrative and I want to say great long strings of adjectives are actually going to detract from the movement and flow of your story. So think of the language you can use to show me what's happening, not just to tell me. I don't want to hear he was a grumpy old man. I want to know he was a grumpy old man because of the way you've described the way he walks, the um, expression on his face, the kind of language that he uses. So it's taking a different slant to the teaching of language features which is really the teaching of grammar, uh, taking a different slant to that as we're working on writing for a particular purpose and helping uh, students really at the coalface to come to grips with how they can use language effectively for their writing. And this will come uh, across with every aspect of grammar. Are you writing a persuasive text? Then we talk about high modality language. Are you writing a narrative? Then we want to have really interesting verbs and we might be creating a cline with um, all the words I could be using instead of said from whispered all the way up to shouted, screamed, whatever uh, at the top of my voice. So we're 
we're really teaching at the moment where students need the grammar, vocab, spelling uh, for the current piece of writing that they're working on. Um, I just wanted to, you mentioned uh, in there that, you know, that we need to be looking at the appropriate vocab. Do you use mentor texts or anything like that to, how, how does that fit in with what you're saying about word choice in terms of showing um, what real authors are doing in so that we unpack what a real author does so that children can then have a go at replicating it in their own writing is that what you're saying in there yeah definitely I I like the idea of using a mentor text and we'll talk about that later in these uh, uh, five take five points in this course but yes Mary Ellen you're exactly right there's a couple of ways in which I would want to expand student vocabulary in writing one of those is if I'm writing in a particular um, KLA then I'd want to have a word wall that's about that topic. And my expectation is that students are using the words that are on that word wall for the topic uh, orally and that then I begin to see those words in their writing as well. And I've got a not negotiable policy. If the word is on the word wall, then I expect it to be written accurately in uh, student writing. And the other way that you mentioned is the idea of a mentor text. Whatever I'm writing, with students, whether it's a persuasive text, an informative text, or an imaginative text, then in the part of my English block where we're doing reading, I would be looking at a similar kind of text and drawing parallels between what we're doing in reading and what we're doing in writing so that students can make that connection between, ah, here's someone writing for the same purpose as me. I can look at how they're doing it in terms of text features, text structures and language features, and I can borrow or copy some of those features. But we'll elaborate on that a little bit later. Before we get to your discussion around editing, could I talk about paragraphs? Please do. So um, I want to talk about paragraphs because paragraphing is um, a critical aspect of being an effective writer. And I think it's one of those things that as teachers, we've created a whole lot of rules around it. And we hear some amazing rules, don't we, Mary Ellen, oh, when we're out I've in got schools? A <laughs> um, teachers make up rules that might seem sensible at the time in terms of the current class you have in front of you. But we forget that students take a hold of our words of wisdom and take them into the rest of their lives. So I'm thinking of a couple of things around paragraphing. The first is that a paragraph must have four sentences. Unfortunately, that is not true. It might make it easy for you to say this is a paragraph and that's not a paragraph, but there are no rules around the number of sentences in a paragraph. In fact, a paragraph could be one sentence that you're wanting as a writer to stand alone and separate from the rest of the writing for some particular stylistic purpose. And so you've chosen, you've made a writer's decision to have a paragraph that is one sentence. Obviously, most paragraphs will have more than one sentence. A paragraph can be indicated by indenting, it can be indicated by leaving a line space, or it may be indicated through editing as a bracket. 
uh, to show that you want to start a new paragraph there. But I think the more I've taught writing, the more I've come to think that actually understanding the text structure helps us to know how to draft in paragraphs. And I think we end up with a more powerful text if paragraphing is not something students go back and do at an editing stage, but it's something they're thinking about because of what they know about the text structure that suits their purpose. So if I'm writing a narrative, for instance, I'm going to have at least one paragraph that sets the scene, that sets my story up, that maybe introduces the character, that maybe reels my audience in so that they are engaged and want to keep reading. I'm going to have paragraphs that outline an event, that re-describe a character and their reaction to a situation, that roll into the complication and the resolution that will all be expressed through paragraphs. And if I've taught paragraphs well, and if I've taught text structure well, then students will be able to do their draft writing more or less in a paragraph form. Certainly they might make changes. And I do think the more writing of students that I've looked at, I do think that that makes for a better put together piece of writing rather than coming to paragraphs at a later stage. So the thing about paragraphs is that their purpose is a little bit different in different texts. And so in an informative text, it's going to be, as you said, Mary Ellen, a bundle of like information. Perhaps I'm talking about habitat. And so the information in this paragraph will all be about habitat. In a persuasive text, it might be one argument that I'm building up through the course of the paragraph. In um, a narrative, it'll be uh, describing a character, introducing a character, going over an event, um, building the tension through a series of events. So the function of paragraphs changes, but the structure of paragraphs is pretty similar. And that is that most paragraphs they have as their first sentence a topic sentence. And the topic sentence outlines the argument that's coming in a persuasive text, the facts or area or bundle of facts that are going to be discussed in an informative text, and gives you a sense of is this setting up the character or describing an event in a narrative text. So that topic sentence and understanding that sentences have a topic sentence that will usually be the first sentence, I think is the key to understanding how paragraphs work. I actually think understanding that is a key to uh, comprehending when you read as well because if you know that as you skim through a text, that first sentence in each paragraph is going to be a key to what the paragraph is about, then it's easy to skim and return to the text to find an answer for a question that you've been asked. So both in reading and in writing, I think paragraphing is a critical part of learning to be a writer. Mm, I can only agree. Um, and the next mechanic we wanted to talk about was editing and the fact that editing is not an option. Um, there are elements of editing that I think we sort of tend to bundle together um, a little bit too much. Uh, but the first point I want to make is that um, 
we need to be separating the editing process from the writing process a little bit. We all know that when we sit down, when we sit down to write something, when you read it straight away, you are reading what you've actually written, what you think you have written, not necessarily what is on the page. So that that first reread after you have just um, written it, it tends to be revising. We should be talking there about revising. I've just read this. Okay, let me have a look at it. Have I got the text organisation right? Um, have, have I got the focus right? Am I, am I sticking to the point of my writing? Um, am I meeting the needs of the audience? So that I'm looking at the text initially, I am revising my text initially to see that I have actually met my purpose and audience. And I think we can do that um, pretty much as we've written it. Anyway, ha- have I got this right the first time? I think too, Mary Ellen, sometimes in that re- revising process, it's about thinking, oh, here's a better word that I could use. And so I might be swapping out a word or adding in a te- piece of technical language that I didn't do on my, on that first write. So that's another aspect, I think, of revising. Oh, definitely. It's sort of putting it in and in. It's an improving. Yes. It, you know, it, yes. It's, it's an improving. That first, okay, I've thrown this on the paper, now I'm going to improve it by revising, looking at have I met my audience, are there better words that I can use? The next part of it is editing where you are critically looking at it, looking at the writing to locate errors. And I think that that is definitely something that is better done at a distance from the first write, that first revise. Um, because here is where we're looking for the uh, for errors in spelling. We're looking for errors in grammar. Have I got my um, you know, verb, subject verb agreements right? Um, have I got punctuation? I mean, I would like to get like students to get punctuation right pretty much the first time. I mean, really, they started to learn about capital letters in full stops in kindergarten. I don't I agree, know why Mary they for, I don't know why they forget mm. from there on in. Um, and the the cohesion of the text, you know, is it, you know, ha- am I using the right um, pronoun referencing uh, through there? Am I making, you know, cohesion is a, I mean, it's a minefield and a whole, is that a whole podcast of its own, do you I think? I think it might be, Mary Ellen. <laughs> but so um, now you can, um, you can have a look at, you can do this editing process a couple of times. It's described, you can describe it as weeding the, weeding the garden. Um, but it also comes back to the number of times you might go through that process comes back to just what your intention is for that piece of writing. I mean, sometimes we just let kids write and, yes, they can revise it straight away. But, you know, we need to, to have a look at what that, you know, the long-term issue is. The last part of editing is proofreading and that is that very um, – last look at this is ready to go for publication it's in its pure form um it's my last attempt to change any mistakes and i have to say that proofreading is a wonderful thing and we've got to know that professional editors let mistakes go through (laughs) there is not a book i've ever read that hasn't had at least one minor mistake in it um but what i think we need to do with this process is actually raise the bar uh, we've got to allow time for editing to take place. We have to be explicit in the teaching of those different processes. You know, I'm looking for different things each time I go back. Um, and we need to honour it. 
in terms of it is an important part. It is not, you know, write a paragraph, okay, now edit. It's really difficult for adults to do, so why do we keep asking students to do it? Um, we've also, um, one of the schools I've worked in has um, people you know, frequently say, you know, what about peer editing? And working in lots of primary classrooms, I've seen peer editing actually create havoc mm. <laughs> where, where the peer cheerfully edits in a whole lot, whole lot of mistakes that weren't in the original piece of, um, piece of writing. Uh, so one of the schools I looked at uh, worked on, you know, book on book, on book e- um, reviewing and editing where, you know, with the partner you put your books together and you as the author, your partner can make suggestions about the editing, but you as the author have the final say. I really like the fact that the author maintains ownership. Mary uh, Ellen, I, I, can I interrupt there, Mary Ellen? I, I think uh, I agree entirely with what you've said about we need to raise the bar around editing. And um, I think part of that is we haven't made it seem very attractive because basically there are very few of us as adults who like to edit. And we know how kids, uh, right, I've done it, it's finished, that's it, now it's over to you and you've got the red pen teacher, you put in the capitals, the full stops and make any changes you want, but I'm finished, over and out. And so somehow we have to teach that actually there is a writing process and we do need to ensure that each of those elements gets fo- gets followed through. And maybe it comes down just to praise. It's, um, right, everybody, put your pens down. I just noticed uh, Susan over here do something really clever. She's gone back and edited her work. That's what good writers do. Well done, Susan. And kind of raise the... Um, raise the respectability of editing, make it something serious and worth worth doing uh, to, to find what, any way we can that's going to enthuse students about that process of revising and editing work because it is important and we all it is something we all need to do even though it might not be the aspect of writing that we like the most. Oh, come on, it's fun, isn't it? Well, Mary Ellen, no. you are the only natural <laughs> editor I know. You you are excellent at finding the mistakes in uh, all of Until they go on the screen and then I go, oh, my goodness me, how did I let that go through? <laughs> so we're talking about the mechanics. Let's talk about the process. And um, an underloved part of the process is planning. And um, the best advice I've ever got about planning is from, you know, a real author. And... Um, that whole, if you if you spend some time planning, which goes beyond you know a box with four you know yes. table with four squares, you can actually accommodate a whole lot of um, writing features and get them right back at the planning stage. Um, I immediately think of informative text. You know, let's plan to put all that information in that paragraph and all that information in that paragraph. Um, and I, but I think one of the key points is showing students a variety of ways of planning. Um, I love um, planning persuasive texts using a tree, where you know each of the um, key arguments goes on a on a limb, and the supporting evidence goes on the leaves. But that doesn't re- doesn't work for everyone. I mean, some people do like the little boxes. Um, I think even drawing, Mary Ellen, can oh. be a great planning tool and I think it's one we tend to neglect in years three to six. We've encouraged it K to two. 
then it sort of drops off. But for a lot of people, that drawing is a great uh, tool to aid their thinking process. Oh, I can only agree. Um, and one of my favourite planning tools at the moment is post-it note planning because uh, the beauty of a post-it note is that you can rip it off the page and um, move it along. And post-it note planning came to me via um, a young author, Oliver Farmwell. Um, praise be to Oliver. Um, that sort of planning, providing a variety and allowing students to choose the planning process um, that best suits their needs. I mean, you can certainly explicitly teach a whole range to meet the different purposes because, you know, there might be a different planning approach for a different purpose, but I'll also allow um, students that opportunity to, you know, to work it out for themselves, to choose theirs for themselves. And, yes, I love drawing. Mm. Never underestimate the power of, of of drawing because once you get someone, some of those little people to explain, and some of the big people too, yes. to explain what's in the drawing, all of a sudden you've got a whole story yes. um, that you didn't know was there. So once they've planned, and again, this is something that needs to happen on you know, a, a day or two, um, uh, particularly for, for, for the primary kids, you then moved into a draft. Now, if you've taken the time to plan well, your draft will just almost write itself. and you know, that plan has given you that, you know, where you're going to start, where you're going to head. It's given you the whole, you know, the big picture thinking so that as you draft, as you're writing it, you can you can flesh out each of those those points. I have heard people talk about, you know, kids are sick of, you know, by the time they get to the fourth or fifth draft. And I have to say, so would I. Mm. Um, I think we've got to be careful how many times we we ask kids to to draft things, and again, it becomes you know, what's the teaching purpose? Am I teaching them to draft and edit? Then maybe I'll I'll do it a couple of times. But I think we've always got to be clear where is this piece of writing going? Um, with drafts, I would no longer ever say, "Don't worry about the spelling; just get your ideas down." No, the ideas came in the planning stage. What you are doing is you are crafting a piece of writing to the very best that you can, using the very best language choices you can and having a go at, at what you can do. Um, no one, no adult drafts something totally illegible and incoherent and misspelt completely, I hope. Mm. Um, so why do we allow kids to, you know, misspell was that they learnt in kindergarten. So just even in a draft, I think there can be a high level of accuracy. Did you want to add anything more about drafting there? Well, the only thing I wanted to add, Mary Ellen, is I agree with you about doing the very best you can around that spelling, but I still want that element of, uh, well, I won't use that word that I don't know how to spell. I'll have a go. I'll have my best go at the new language or the technical language uh, rather than dumb it down and not use that. But I agree with you that it might be a draft, but it still needs to be the best quality that we can do. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and I'm I'm happy with whatever spelling of the multisyllabic word that's absolutely fantastic that that's appropriate, but I'm not happy with year, spe- year six spelling went with an H. No, <laughs> I, I agree with that. The other thing about the drafting process is there's going to be pieces of writing that the draft is all you do and you don't work your way through the entire writing process for every piece of writing. 
Um, so I think that's worth remembering as well. It's important to know the writing process, but not necessary to go through the entire process for every piece of writing. Oh, that's a liberating thought, isn't it? It certainly is. Imagine having to sort of sit down on Monday and draft and publish by Friday. I'd be very... Yes. Bored? Ah, <laughs> Over <liberate>. it? <laughs> um, you were talking um, about fun. I mean, one of the things is we want all kids to be writers and if we put such huge parameters around them in terms of, you know, every, every piece has got to be taken through to a pol- polished piece, well, adults don't write like that. Why do we expect our littlest? Um Okay, so in the in the process, we've talked about the need to plan. We've talked about the need to draft. We've already talked about the need to edit and the explicit teaching of it. We've talked about um, revising to improve. Let's make this the best that we we can, and then publish. Now, you've just said not every piece of writing goes through to publishing, so we need to be clear in our back at the teacher planning level. Which parts of um, the tasks that we're setting up, which ones are going to be pieces that we want to um, take through to publishing? And there's even that element of bringing in student choice. Why should we be the ones who always decide which bit gets published? I mean, students are perfectly capable of saying, I really like this piece of writing. I'd like to see it mm. published. So I think there's, um, it's important that we, that we build that in. Now, that's the process. What's the teacher implication in all of this? Well, students need to be writing every day. And as part of that independent writing, teachers need to be conducting writing conferences. And so you've you've got a situation where you might be conferencing with um, kids on different pieces of writing. Um, you don't always have to conference on every every piece of writing for every you know the same piece of writing for every child, mm-hmm. but you, when you sit down to conference, you need to be really careful of what it is you are focusing on, and it tends to be what it is you have focused on in your modelled the modelled part of writing that day, um, so that we've got to be very wary of having a conference about everything. I agree with that. It's too much overload. We want our most teachable point. That's We want to identify something that's going to make the most difference to this student's writing and hone in on that rather than um, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Um, that's just overload and none of us respond positively to that sort of situation. I think at one stage you've talked about um, um, we need to improve the writer. So we need to improve the thinking of the writer. We need to improve the skills of the writer. We don't need to polish every piece. I think that's a good way of looking at it because we're looking long term. Our goal is to produce a classroom of independent writers. So as you're having a conference and thinking about the conference, you're thinking about, well, what's the next step in this writer's journey? Not what's going to make this piece the best. What's the next most powerful teaching for this writer? Um, and sometimes that can just be a positive. Can you keep writing? Exactly. I, I really want to see how this ends. Can you yes, keep writing? Yes, and probably that's the best feedback you can give to a, a capable writer just to encourage them to keep yeah. going and to keep writing and that you're there as a ready and willing audience to enjoy whatever they write. 
So we don't always have to find something? We don't always have to use a red pen. Oh, the red pen. Let's put it away. (laughs) Uh, And also part of that is um, then allowing students the opportunity to reflect on themselves, reflect on their own writing, how they feel about their writing. Um, I know I've had personal experience of kids who have reflected that I don't think I'll, you know, after a conference, I don't think I'll ever write again. Um, so being able to reflect about how they feel about their writing and which is the piece of writing they are most proud of, I think is a very, yeah, very important thing. What else do they need? What do they think they need to learn best about, um, about writing? I had an experience with one school who um, asked the students to create their own um, next learning goal in writing from looking at their own writing. I mean, and we were talking about years one and two and what they what they noticed was that the majority of the class picked the learning goal that the teacher um, would have picked. And for the one or two who picked a different learning goal, um, those kids were able to make a good case for it, they said. So it's if we're giving kids tools to reflect on their own writing and, and they've had experience of what good writing looks like, um, they can get to the point of being able to to make those you know, accurate reflections on their own success. I think that's really true, Mary Ellen, and leads us really nicely into the last of our Take 5 points, and that is read like a writer. So what I'm talking about there is that process that's outlined in the New South Wales English syllabus as a key process, and that is re- reading and responding to text and composing text the idea that there's a reciprocity between what we read and respond to and what we learn through that process and how we can apply that to writing and vice versa. So I think we mentioned earlier just briefly the idea of a mentor text and I think any text can be a mentor text and you can choose a text that you've been using in your modelled reading part of the day and follow that up in come back to it and revisit it in the modelled writing part of your English block to talk about um, either the whole text, perhaps it's a narrative and you want to outline the structure of the narrative and revisit that in the mentor text and talk about that as a way into students' own writing of a narrative. Or perhaps you're just going to highlight even a sentence within that text Look at this sentence that starts with an adverb. How powerful is this sentence? Have a go today when you're writing and see if you can start your sentence with an adverb. So there's a multitude of ways from looking at the whole text to looking at individual language features within the text that are going to show students the reality of here's what one writer has done, here's what I could be doing in my writing. When I've used mentor texts, either with groups of teachers or with students, I've found the same thing happens every time. There are some teachers or there are some students who really closely follow the model that we've looked at in the mentor text. And others will just quite casually use that mentor text. But I'm thinking of the classes I've taught and thinking that there have been students in the class who I would have been thrilled to bits if they had really closely followed the patterning or language and borrowed from that mentor text into their own writing. Obviously, over time, I'm going to want it to become 
their own work and more individual. But if they're patterning what they're doing on a quality published text, they're learning an awful lot about how to be a writer. So I think that's a a tool that we can use very powerfully. And I think it's a tool that's hinted at in the way the syllabus has been set up with that key process of reading and responding leading into composing. The other aspect of that is that writing develops writing. If we want to be a good reader, we have to allow students time to read. If we want to develop good writers, we've got to give them opportunities to write. And that opportunity, as Mary Ellen, you said before, needs to happen every day. Um, I get very sad, and this has happened more than once, where I'm in a school and they're saying, oh, look, we're just introducing the unit. So students haven't done any writing this week or last week because we're introducing the unit. We've got to find opportunities and real reasons for students to write every day. I'm a great believer in students having a writer's notebook or a journal and using that even in their independent reading to make a note of words or phrases that really appeal to them so that they're reading independently and noticing what authors are doing. I want them to have a go at writing things that interest them. If you've got a child in your class that's obsessed about vacuum cleaners, well, the writer's notebook or the journal is an opportunity for that writer to write about something they know a whole lot about. And we all write better with the things that engage us. Not everybody in the class is going to be engaged by the topics for writing that we choose for them. And while, yes, we do want them to engage in the class activities, we also want through that journal or writer's notebook students to have an opportunity to write about things that particularly interest them. Can I just add something there in terms of um, writing for student interest but also writing collaboratively? Um, Some of the best fun I've had in a classroom with teaching writing was where um, we innovated on a text that you'd shared with me, um, Lockie Leonard's Scumbuster by Tim Winton. That opening paragraph is fantastic. Oh, it's a great text. (laughs) And we collaboratively um, innovated on that paragraph around um, the students in the class arriving um, in the classroom to find that the teacher was missing. And we based the story on that beautiful old text, Miss Nelson is Missing. So the students then in groups, you know, we we collaborated on that first section and the students in groups and pairs came up with all the terrible things that may have happened so that as a class we created a whole text. So I just wanted to to come in into that point of not all writing needs to be me alone with my pencil, you know, I'm I'm sort of trying to link your, you know, read mm. like a writer, innovate on the text, but it can still be groups of kids. And But your point is whether it's individual or group or whole class, it needs to be every day. Every day. And I think there's two things there, every day and read like a writer, use those mentor texts. And in that example that you've made reference to, Mary Ellen, there were two texts that students were using as a model and borrowing features from to include in their own writing. Well, we've had a great chat today, Mary Ellen, about improving writing. And 
As this is part of the Take 5 series, there are five things that we want teachers to take away from our discussion. The first is to unpack the why and the who. That really means having an understanding about purpose and audience. We want teachers to understand that how, that is the text structure and the language features, follows from knowing your purpose and your audience. There's a power in learning the mechanics. There's power in the experience of the writing process. And lastly, read like a writer. Write every day and use mentor texts. Today we've been discussing improving writing. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to talking together again. Mm -hmm.